0: Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Charleston, South Carolina. As my family and I continue our voyage, I'm excited to be joined by Kim Nioni, who is the AVP of development at UNLV. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Brent. Glad to be here with you. Well, I'm really excited to learn more about your story uh, on a personal level. One of the things I've been doing with recent guests is asking them. Uh, Before we get into your career and development, let's talk about your own path to higher education. And I want you to think back to the Kim that was uh, 16, 17 years old, thinking about uh, his future, uh, what ultimately uh, shaped your path to higher education. And it was different than most of our guests.
1: Yeah, certainly. Thank you for that. Uh, As you know, uh, I think I shared, I was born and and raised in uh, in a country called Tanzania in East Africa. And uh, I attended uh, high school in uh, in what we call secondary school at a number of boarding schools in in Nairobi, Kenya. And so uh, I came from that background of uh, a family that really valued education because education had been the key to uh, allowing my, my parents to be successful. My dad was born in the village. I mean, he didn't wear shoes until he was, uh, he was in high school. Okay, so uh, he came from uh, a very, very uh, impoverished uh, part of the country, but it was his attending a uh, seminary school uh, that was run by the Catholic church that basically helped him uh, you know, uh, be successful. And uh, that led him to go to Cambridge University in England uh, where he got his, uh, his education. And my, my mother was, uh, uh, you know, raised, raised by a father who was a doctor, and so on the first African doctors. And so she was more fortunate than my father financially. So but still was able to attend uh, university and uh, uh, retired as a as a as an accountant. And so that's the background that I came uh, that I came from where, yeah, it was expected that, uh, you know, you do, pursue higher education because higher education was the key, uh, to your future, uh, accomplishments and success. And so, uh, I was, you know, finishing boarding school.
0: Tim, can I ask like growing up in Tanzania, you know, hearing your dad talk about his time at Cambridge, uh, what was that like? I mean, it had to almost seem, uh, I mean, were you able to, to visit early on in your career? I mean, just what was your, what was your early impression of the impact that Cambridge, Cambridge had on your father's life?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, he always talked fondly about that time when he had gone to the local university. And then from there, he gets a full right to go to Cambridge. And it says, no, that really opened his eyes, uh, you know, to, uh, to see the world differently. Because when he was uh, younger at the time, the country was a socialist country. So, you know, the government controlled everywhere that you uh, you go. As a matter of fact, uh, when he was, uh, as, as fate would have it, when he was in um, uh, in college in, in Cambridge, he had an opportunity uh, to, to go to Princeton, uh, you know, on a Ford Foundation Fellowship, you know, so he was gonna be an academic. But then the government said, no, you can't go uh, because we want you to go run a co-op in the middle of nowhere. Tanzania. So they went back to the Ford Foundation and said, well, uh, you know, we actually have somebody else that we want to send, you know, from our country. And they said, well, of course not. Uh, We're going to move this fellowship to another country. So, uh, but, you know, that that was a very transformative time for him. And, uh, you know, in exposing him to, uh, you know, different culture, different way of doing things. And it kind of planted that seed of entrepreneurship and and, and uh, you know that that basically uh, you know led him to uh, you know to to the academy as a management professor, and then working in uh, admin, uh, in banking uh, uh, for, for his entire career. And so for me, those were those the uh, you know seeing those uh, uh, you know those those stories were inspiring. And then uh, when I was uh, finishing boarding school, I was actually looking to move to Australia. I, I was I was admitted to law school in Australia. And, you know, uh, in a British system, you don't have to go do four years and then go go law school. You can go straight. But my parents did not want me to move so far. And we had some family here in Nebraska. And so next thing you know, I go home and say, well, pack, pack your bags. Uh, you'll be moving to Nebraska in a month. And so I go from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, a city of, uh, you know, seven million people to Lincoln, Nebraska, with a grand total of 225,000 people in the middle of
0: nowhere United States. Jim, <laughs> I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that on the entire African continent that year, there were not too many people considering either Australia or Lincoln, Nebraska. So I think you really uh, were, were in a unique dis- uh, 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 part of the uh, admissions landscape. Uh, I don't know how many other folks were thinking through those options, but
1: yeah, so you're you're, you're right on. And uh, but I, but I'll tell you though, I uh, I mean when I think of what makes me who I am, professional and everything else, I mean I look at you know my time that I spent as a 17 year old moving to Nebraska and living there until I was uh, 25 as being had, had you
0: fun. had you been there
1: uh, before? Never had you been to the US never. before. I'd never been to the US. I'd never been. Wow. To- Nebraska and so I just
0: dropped there. uh, So you drop in, what's week one? I mean, take me back to orientation. What are the thoughts going through your head? Um, Any like early memories where where you just felt like this is the place for me?
1: You know, uh, I remember first day of orientation we're doing new student orientation. We got a big festival and uh, the school spirit, you know, Everybody wearing red, and everybody, you know, stopping I say, "Hi, how you doing? Are you okay?" It always felt weird, you know. It's like I don't know this person, right? But people were so, were so friendly, and you know, from the staff to the professors, just wanted to make sure that you felt at home. And for me, early impressions, like, I've never lived, you know, I, I lived in, in, in Nairobi, Kenya, and, and Dar es Salaam, very diverse cities. You know, my boarding school was. Uh, c- comprised of people from different nationalities and ethnicities. So I've, I've always been around a, a sort of multicultural melting pot. Now, if, you know, fast forward, 1999, Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. It's not necessarily the most diverse place in America. You know, so that was a big shock to me. I'd never lived in any place that was, that that had such a high percentage of Caucasians. You know, it's, it was, it was they are always very balanced communities. But what I do tell people is that, even though it was not the most uh, raci- racially diverse environment, some of the best people in America, the, the nicest salt of the Europe, will take off their shirt, the shirt, and give it to you. Where uh, you know, are from there, and so I, I'm always uh, proud of, uh, of of the fact that I spend most of my formative years in, in in Lincoln, Nebraska, and
0: in the state of Nebraska. And so, you know, you go from probably not knowing what a corn husker is to, uh, to becoming one. And uh, I think, you know, my understanding is getting pretty immersed in the culture and really buying into, uh, you know, just, the, just everything that, that makes Nebraska the great institution that it is. Um, How did you spend your time as a student? You know, when did you feel like you really hit your stride? Were there uh, specific programs, clubs you got uh, involved with that, that helped? I mean, what really stands out?
1: So uh, as an undergrad, my sophomore year is what I felt like I had hit the stride because initially uh, coming from the British system, our education was not, fo- was, was focused more on critical thinking. And, you know, you, you write essays, you know what I mean? You, you unpack an idea through an essay. You don't do multiple choice. And so I spent the first year trying to figure out this multiple choice thing, you know, cause it was just uh, not the way I was wired. And then once I got past that, uh, I became involved with Kappa Alpha Fraternity. I was president of my pledge class, and I, uh, I, I, was, I was in a number of different roles. Within the fraternity, I was also involved with, uh, we called it at that time, the uh, Student Union Board. So we'll, we'll basically, uh, a group of students that work with the administration to decide what goes into the student union, what kind of services we offer, and things like that. And uh, I also played uh, rugby my first two years, uh, I used to play rugby in high school, so I played two years in college, and uh, I just got involved in, in, in many of the student government-related things. I mean, I just really felt that, uh, you know, uh, I was part and parcel of that community. I was a student ambassador. Uh, I mean, I did anything and everything that you could do outside of running for for, for student body. For some reason, at that time, I didn't think I wanted to, to go through that. I, I, I had a Hate and hate relationship with politics, and, uh, and so uh, yeah. But it was uh, it, you know it, it was a it was a great experience. When I tell when I tell uh, people, you know, I say, look, you know, Nebraska calls me, I give him money. Like they don't even have to ask me. Like I'll give him money. Why? Because working in the space that I work in in advancement, you know, I know the impact of giving, and I know I was fortunate enough to uh, my graduate education was paid for by Nebraska. Okay. And so uh if it wasn't for those funds available to the athletic department where I worked and the university in general, uh, I would not have been able to, you know, to uh, to afford uh you know an education. And so uh, you know, uh I I owe that to them always. And
0: uh so I'm, I'm always willing to to pay for it. Well, we work with a lot of the folks over there. I'm gonna make sure you all get connected um after this, but um one thing that stood out to me is during your time, and maybe this was a segue to the athletics realm, uh, you worked for Sports Illustrated. And I want to know more about that because as a you know, student athlete growing up in Iowa, just uh, next door, I mean, Sports Illustrated was, I mean, that was it at that time. And uh, we didn't have cable. I didn't have the SBN, So it was always um, getting the Sports Illustrated or Sports Illustrated for kids was like the highlight of the month. So what was it like being a student um, representative for Sports Illustrated? What, what was the job?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I was looking to, to get into uh, sports marketing as a professional career before I discovered this thing that we do here. And so, as I was, uh, you know, looking around different places, I came across Sports Illustrated on campus. As you recall, at that time, it was in the infancy stages of Facebook and all this uh, social media craze. So, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated thought, well, why don't we develop a publication that is 100% focused on uh, college athletics and lifestyle and what have you. And then we'll distribute that through the uh, campus uh, uh, newspaper. And so that created an opportunity to have a Sports Illustrated on campus, uh, campus rep. And so I, it was an unpaid internship with a lot of great perks, you know? Uh, so every week, you know, I, I, I went online to Time Inc. and I submitted my, my resume. I get a call, you're hired. And so my job it was to recruit four other interns uh, and uh, that will work with me to conduct guerrilla marketing campaigns on campus. So for instance, uh, we had, we had uh, clients such as uh, Doc Martens and Doc Martens once was launching a new, a new product. So then my job would be to go, I'll, I'll get all this gear from Time Inc. and my job was to set up a booth on campus give away, you know, swag, and then host an event, uh, you know, to premiere a documentary that they were making. And so I will do that. And also, in addition, every week, I had to ensure that the student magazine, the newspaper was actually distributing the publication. And so then I'll call New York and say, OK, yep, this week everything went well. We, we, we know we, uh, we, we did what we we're supposed to. And it was really, you know, so we did such a great, great job. We were one of the, uh, there are about 400 teams in the country. We we're top five. And so as a result of that, you know, uh, I, myself and the team, you know, we'll go to swimsuit party in New York, uh, you know, we'll represent the brand uh, here in Las Vegas at the magic show, uh, you know, where all the vendors come and buy and buy a product or select like, uh, designers food that I want to feature in their stores. I was, uh, you know, I was part of a group that of students that Sports Illustrated flew us in to, uh, you know, to to stay over at the Palms and then go and speak on a panel about college fashion trends and things like that. So it was a really... I mean, what are, you,
0: what are your classmates? I mean, that sounds pretty sweet. And by the way, Doc Martens and Sports Illustrated, that's my language right there. I mean, that's yeah. like peak, late 90s, just say Abercrombie and Fitch, and we're really talking now, exactly. but... Uh, so, I mean, what are your friends thinking? This sounds like kind of a dream job. I mean, I guess you're saying you don't get paid, but you kind of get everything else that probably yeah. is worth more than money at that point. Yeah.
1: I mean, at that time, I mean, pe- people thought it was uh, it's, it's like, you know, how'd you find out about this? I mean, this is crazy. So I say, hey, guess what? I was just in New York. I went to well, I went to the service party. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was in New York and uh, got to meet with a publisher, with the CEO. And, you know, we're, we're, we're talking uh, the future of... Uh, of college sports and, and, and publications and things like that. I mean, uh, you know, it, it was, it was, to me, it was priceless. The experience, you know, was priceless. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I had a job opportunity with them full time, but uh, you know, personal uh, events, uh, my wife at the time uh, was finishing graduate work in, uh, in, in San Jose. So we, uh, you know, I had to make that that personal decision to forego a career in, in, uh, in, in sports marketing in New York city to go to the Bay area and work in work in athletics at Berkeley. So, <laughs> and that, opened um, the door, that opened the door to uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to my future in advancement.
0: So tell me about that. You, uh, when did you know that advancement was a thing? You know, when did you know, um, you know, certainly there's the intersection of athletics, which is part fundraising and then part, other revenue-generating activities, but uh, at, at what point was it during your student time uh, in Nebraska, or was it more when you got to Berkeley that you really understood that fundraising is a real business? Fifty billion a year is being raised in this sector. Maybe not then, but now. Um, when did you? When did that start to click?
1: So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, during my time at Nebraska, I I worked as a graduate assistant, uh, you know, in, in student fairs and then also in the athletic department. And during that time, I met uh, a, a lady by the name of Barbara Hidner. Uh, she passed away years ago. But Dr. H, as we called her, was the first female athletic director for our program at Nebraska. I mean, she was very selfless, uh, you know, just very, very giving over time. Uh, what you see today at Nebraska athletics, in my opinion, would not, you know, especially as it relates to women in athletics, those programs would not be there if it wasn't for Dr. for H. I mean, she fought tooth and nail to, uh, you know, to get those programs going. And so early on, as I started working in the athletic department, uh, she took me under her wing and like she did with all the, the students and we'll meet once a week. She'll give me a copy of Fast Company Magazine and circle a few things uh, that she'd be thinking about and whatnot. And then she was telling me the story about how she had to go and solicit money to help, uh, you know, bootstrap, uh, you know, uh, our programs. Uh, we programs because, for instance, uh, you know, with the, with the volleyball program, uh, she secured the Coliseum, went and got donors. I so said, you know, you got to think about this as a career. I said, really, me doing that? I mean, you actually get paid to do this, right? I said, oh, yes, you do. You see all those folks uh, over in South Stadium that's sitting next to you? They always go into the greatest uh, events. They always you know, hosting, uh, you know, really, really fun people. I think you got to think about that. So with that is sort of, uh, when I first got exposed to it. And so she helped me to try to figure out the next steps on how I get in those shoes. And it wasn't until I moved to Berkeley that, uh, finally I had an opportunity to start working at the high school of business. And, uh, you know, she, she was, uh, supported throughout that time too. You know, she, even though I'd moved to California say, hey, how's it going? How are you progressing? How do you like being in California? You know, uh, you know, you'll do great things there. And then she uh, passed away shortly after that. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it was rather unfortunate. Uh, you know, she came down with cancer. After, after 50 years of working, she retires and boom, we lose her in no time. But I, 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 I owe a lot of what I've been able to accomplish to her uh, for, for pushing me that direction.
0: So transitioning to Berkeley, it's a very different part of the country. It's a different program. Um, You're now selling someone else's mission that you maybe haven't experienced the way that you experienced it yourself personally at Nebraska. What was that early transition like? Was it seamless? Was it super difficult? I mean, what do you recall from that period in your career?
1: You know, in a way, there are a lot of uh, similarities between the culture of Nebraska as a people, and yeah. what I found at Berkeley. Now, granted, you know you're talking about two different parts of the country. One of the things about Berkeley that I cherish to this day is the fact that we were very focused on the mission of affecting student outcome and research and discovery. I mean, you go there, everybody was all in, and uh, you know they were whether it didn't matter if you were the dean, associate dean, you know, vice chancellor. We all rode the same direction. I mean, you had a campus with the the, the big, the, the big, the big uh, sort of change uh, that was obvious was the fact that I'm surrounded by really, really, really incredible people. I mean, you got a parking parking lot full of Nobel laureates. I mean, you you have to have won a Nobel Prize to park there, you know, and that is something that not many campuses had. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the, the team, like I said, it was a culture of we, not I, and uh, people who were very selfless. So for me, I couldn't have asked for a better place to start my career. And I couldn't have asked for better people to, uh, to learn from. I mean, uh, one of my, my early uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, mentor in this field was a gentleman by the name of Larry Lawler. Larry Lawler years ago was vice president of Texas. And uh, you know he was at Stanford, and then he came to Berkeley. But you know Larry was a uh, you know again one of those servant leaders that, that you know shepherded a big function uh, functional family of uh, development alumni relations at the high school of business. But you know wh- the way he carried himself, being focused uh, you know on the mission, focus on people. I mean he all he always preached all the time, people matter, people matter. And that, uh, that, so that made it a very seamless transition for me. And, uh, and, and, and I was grateful for that opportunity.
0: And when along the journey, did you start to really feel like this is not just my first job or a way to get to the San Jose area, but I, I, I could see this becoming my career path Were there certain wins or experiences where you started to say like, this is my path.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, Right after uh, my third year at Berkeley, I decided to, uh, to relocate uh, you know, and I went, I went, I went uh, back to the Midwest and, uh, you know, I worked at, at this institution uh, and it was very clear quickly to me that, you know, culturally, this was not a compatible situation, uh, you know, for, for a guy who just came from Berkeley and is used, used to all, all that makes Berkeley great. And so, shortly thereafter, I left and moved back to the Bay Area, and I was thinking, you know what? Uh, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm gonna go back to private sector. You know, that's more like me. But you know what? I had opportunities to go work in the Valley you know, doing, you know, doing BizDev, but it was just not in me, you know what I mean? I just did not feel that that was the right decision. I felt that uh, I was abandoning what I was passionate about. And so that point to me is when I said, OK, this is this is this is going to be a long haul and uh, I uh, I'm going to pursue this as my career. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was it was a very, very uh, interesting time because, you know, uh, things in the Bay were great. And I said, well, you know, it's after eight. Now we're good here. I'm going to you know, go out to the valley and do what you know, what folks do in the valley. But then I'm glad I didn't make that decision. So
0: you have had, or maybe not had to, but you've, you've moved around, you know, to pursue new opportunities, new institutions. Um, You know, tell me about some of the, I don't know, lessons you've learned when you think about joining a new institution. There's just so much to learn, the history, the culture, the people, the acronyms, the traditions. Um, It's got to feel a little overwhelming, but at the same time, you know, you've done that a couple of times now, and you must have, I don't know, a philosophy or an approach on sort of what really matters up front versus what is the stuff that you can just absorb via osmosis over the coming, uh, you know, months and years.
1: To me, what matters up front is the culture and the mission of the institution. I mean, when I consider opportunities, you know, early in my career. If I was advising somebody, my my earlier self, I would say never let money be the factor that influences your decision making. Now, it may sound crazy, but at some point, the core values of the organization, the mission that they serve, and the culture trump any amount of money that they may throw at you. And if you approach this as well, I'm just looking to uh, to be compensated, and I'll go based on that. You're going to be miserable, and you're likely not going to have a very long tenure at that place. So for me, when I look at these opportunities, uh, you know, uh, I always think about okay, what's their what's the, what's their mission? Okay, when I meet with their leadership, what are they about as as people? Not so much as you know, practitioners, but at who are they as people? How do they run the organization? You know, and who are they serving? Is this more about student outcomes? Uh, uh, is this about local economic development or is this institution about just purely research and what kind of areas are they focusing on? So for me, if I have any question about, you know, the, uh, you know, the mission, the core values and the culture, of the place. I don't even bother, uh, you know, pursuing those opportunities. So uh, that's what I've that that's what I learned from some some of the best that that have done it is, uh, you know, just, you know, you meet the people, you know, you 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 spend time at the organ at the institution to understand what it's about, because at the end of the day, it's a two way street. OK, it's it, it takes two to tangle and. Just as much as they're interviewing you, you're interviewing them. And so you really have to ensure that you believe in that. I mean, I look at our mission over here at UNLV. I mean, we're very student-focused. I mean, we're really into, you know, uh, ensuring that our students experience social mobility. Uh, and we're serving mostly first-generation students, okay? To me, if that doesn't speak to you, what would you want to be there, right? But I can tell you almost everybody to a person that, that is here, they are here because they believe in that. And so it's the belief in that, that will make you uh, transcend any of the bureaucratic challenges that sometimes arise in our organization, because you've, your, your eyes focus on the prize and not on, on these uh, shifting sands that, that take place.
0: How do you feel that though, in your role? I mean, I love that. I mean, whether it's your dad going from the village, to Cambridge, or whether it's the first gen student getting access to UNLV. I mean, that's what gets me fired up to this day about this sector as a first gen, you know, oldest of three kids who are all first gen. It's just like, that is what gets me fired up. But how do you you keep your team connected to that impact when you're doing visits or doing the Zoom calls, meeting the donors, trying to hit the revenue goals? At times, that can feel pretty far away from that one student who got the financial aid package that allowed him or her to go to UNLV. How do you kind of infuse some of that impact to keep your team centered on that mission?
1: Well, I believe you know you have to you know you have to demonstrate what you're asking, right? So as 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 leaders, how we carry ourselves, how we speak about our organization, we you know we model certain uh, behavior. Certain uh, ways of doing things, and so if you are simply, you know, harping that hey, revenue, 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 at all cost, then you're going to have a culture that is focused on that. But if you are focused on and preaching about philanthropy, about 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 you know uh, uh, understanding donors' passion and connecting that to the institution, and you're about that, uh, revenue comes. I'll, oftentimes I'll tell, I'll tell people that I've worked with uh, that have been on my team that, you know, uh, we're here for the mission. And if you understand and embrace that, the opportunities for us to earn revenue are endless because the donors that you deal with, they know that. I mean, you know uh, when somebody really is into what the institution is trying to do. Uh, they can they can pick those who are mission focused and those who are just trying to get that gift agreement signed and so uh, you know that that's that's what what my approach is being in, uh, you know in, in, in dealing with that
0: well you might have just answered this question though because there's there's an element where you could have the passion and the belief in the mission but you also got to do the work right? You got to do the activities and you got to bring the passion to it or else the donors will see through it. But on one hand, you could have somebody who's super transactional, maybe not as mission oriented. On the other hand, you might have somebody who's like very mission oriented, but they're just not doing the work at the velocity that needs to get done. How do you kind of balance operational excellence, beating the goal without sacrificing in pursuit of the short-term dollar? I'm sure that's a tough question that, to, you know, but, but I know you've worked with some folks that are real outperformers where they're not only beating their revenue targets, I'm sure the feedback from the donors is they're great to work with and they're beating the revenue targets. But then I know you've worked with people who haven't hit their number, who haven't been able to perform. Do you see any generalizable, I don't know, patterns or trends with um, that subset of folks?
1: Well, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, from the folks that I've worked with, you know, when I think of a model uh, development director, there have been folks who are very mission-driven, but also have a motor. You know, they have they have a self-driven motor to get their work done. You know, and almost every top performer I know of, you know, I can I can think of, you know, uh, a few folks that that we both know, uh, like my friend uh, Dale Wright over at Illinois. I mean, you don't, have, you don't have to tell him that I'm expecting X. I mean, he expects that of himself to get it done. And so to me, it goes back to uh, talent management. It goes back to, uh, you know, uh, looking, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to realize what kind of team you want to have.
0: All right. Well, Kim, it's two o'clock Eastern on a Tuesday. For the folks out there that have a motor, I love that expression. What are the people with a motor doing versus the ones who maybe need to get that motor? I mean, what, what does that mean in your world?
1: Well, in my world, this is somebody who's looking at uh, their portfolio and they're looking at where uh, you know, who they've engaged this week, who they need to follow up with. And they're, they're, they're doing some, uh, some due diligence to prepare for the, na- for, for, for the next day, the next call. And, uh, you know, they're trying to wrap things up uh, in position to, you know, tomorrow, today. You know what I mean? You're always thinking ahead. You're always working. OK, so uh, how many proposals do, do I have in the pipeline who, uh, you know, that need to be delivered? Uh, you know, which uh, donor do I need to to go and uh, and, and, and steward because, uh, you know, of their of their past giving or, uh, you know, which uh, faculty do I need to go talk to to discuss? X project that, w- that we're working on that I would like to get going. So these are, you know, these are people who are thinking, you know, they're always thinking, what can I do to help, you know, prepare better, better prepare for tomorrow and be ready for what comes in front of me, as opposed to those that just sit and wait for prospect research to feed, you know, to feed you information or somebody else to do the legwork. And they say, oh, hey, Brent, here you go. You know? And so it's, it's, that's, it's a self-starter, self-driven person uh, who you know came to an organization for the right reason and they hold themselves at a higher standard than, than others. I mean uh, I, I, yeah, I find many of the best people that I've worked with they're actually more critical of their own work than you are and uh, they come to me and say, well oh oh man I, I had a bad year you know I, I was trying to hit ten billion dollars but it came out you know six, seven I said six, seven. That's more than you've done ever. I mean, that's great. No, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Uh, we got to do better. And th- those are the folks that I really I really appreciate.
0: I love that. Well said. Um, tell me a little bit about the importance of leadership at the institution. You've talked a lot about the mission, but I know that you know Ricky uh, at UNLV is an important um, leader, right? And so, how do you think about um, you know who you want to work with, who you want to work for?
1: You know. I got to tell you, uh, le- leadership is absolutely critical. You know, uh, I like working with people who are compassionate. They have a clear vision of where they see an organization going, and they have clear expectations as what they you know what they expect of the team. And so, one of the, you know one of the things that I appreciate about you know my uh, my current president, you know, is that you know. He's a seasoned, uh, you know, a professional, has been in this field for a long time, worked at the highest level. He uh, empowers us as leaders to lead, okay? And he's there to provide, you know, uh, uh, cover to help steer the ship. But at the same time, he trusts the people that are in leadership positions to lead. And that's absolutely critical. You know, uh, there are some leaders who, uh, micromanage, they don't have a clear vision, and or they're simply just focused on bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, people come second. And, you know, the leaders that I, I, I aspire to work with is like folks that I have right now, who are passionate about, uh, uh, you know, the mission of the institution, uh, you know, all of us are we're, 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 uh, you know beneficiaries of uh, philanthropic gifts that enable us to to get an education and so it's not, it's not ju- this is not just a job uh, you know to you know to to Ricky or dr Whitfield uh, university president this is a mission and so that translates in how they treat the team and how they are focused on, it, on ensuring that our entire organization is sound uh, and so you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stress enough the importance of having a leader that you're aligned with.
0: You've mentioned Ricky, you've mentioned Dale. I mean, who are some of the other people just in the sector that you think highly of, that you think, um, you know, have that passion, commitment, motor, um, you know, uh, really make an impact? I mean, who, who do you consult with um, as uh, peers in the, in the space?
1: um uh so Barry Benson uh, who's uh, vice chancellor for advancement at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign uh he was a uh, you know former Boston colleague of mine in Arizona but uh you know somebody I think very highly of uh, Jim Moore president CEO of University of Illinois Foundation uh you know Dexter Bailey uh VP over Caltech in, in California somebody who I've, I've I I go back to Berkeley uh with I mean with 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 been through this journey for, uh, you know, for, for many, many moons, uh, you know, Floyd Akins over at Michigan State, uh, somebody who I, who I deal with, uh, Angelique Grant from the Aspen Leadership Group. Uh, Rod Kirsch, who used to be uh, the uh, uh, senior vice president for development at Penn State. I mean, you look at what Rod has uh, has done, you know, even though, you know, he's retired now. There are many folks around the country who are vice presidents or AVPs that all came through Penn State. What a legacy! I mean, that to me is something that I hope one day I can have the same impact in having all these people that are successful that I helped, uh, you know, open the doors or or uh, develop their, their their career that way. And uh, I mean, there I can think of you know so many wonderful people that I've met in this journey. I mean, now. Uh, one of my friends at Danny Nicholson he used to be at Coastal Carolina years ago. And, you know, Danny could have gone and worked at any other university. Uh, but he liked to work at places like Coastal Carolina, Carson Newman, you know, Glenville State in West Virginia, because to him, it was about the mission, serving the students. I mean, today, you know, he retired from from uh, frontline uh, work, but he and his wife, uh, you know, run this. Uh, you know, home for uh, you know uh, youths uh, You know who are, are challenged, and so I. That's somebody who has true commitment to the field of advancement and the mission of university advancement.
0: I love it, Kim. Great examples and a reminder of just how tight knit and connected uh, the sector is, and how your relationship. Um, from 20 years ago continues to compound and um, be mutually beneficial in an ongoing way. Um, I, I got to ask, I mean, we've spent some time recently just talking through the future of the sector. I mean, when you think about where we are now, what's holding us back? Where Where is the sector over-investing? Where are we under-investing? What are some of the big ideas that you're um, thinking through um, here in 2021?
1: So from my perspective, I think, you know, uh... What I've seen is we we have invested so much in in throwing our bodies at, at at situations, right? You know, higher, 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 and uh, you know, a lot of it has been in response to campaigns. You know, people are launching campaigns, say, okay, well, add twenty people, add thirty people, uh, but the infrastructure that it takes to support that has not been, uh, you know, we have not invested much in that. If you look, if you look nationally, you look at how many programs are scaling up their frontline hiring? And then look in the back in the back uh, in, in, on, the, on the flip side of that. What how are they scaling up operationally to be able to support all that? Okay. And I'm not quite convinced that those two are balanced. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, I mean, post-COVID, we have some significant challenges that our institutions need to address okay, and uh, whether it's uh, student access to education because those students that were economically challenged pre-COVID are gonna be even more challenged post-COVID, okay, uh, th- th- whether it's uh, improving your campus infrastructure, what is that gonna look like? Or maybe you, know, you, wanna, you wanna pivot to, to different uh, aspects of, uh, of uh, research and, and, and economic development. All of those are things that are happening in a space where uh, some private institutions are, are severely challenged because they're very tuition dependent. And then those of us who are state affiliated, uh, our, our budget cells also gonna be interesting, right? So folks look at uh, advancement as the solution provider. And so we need to come up with ways to engage a broader spectrum of uh, pr- prospective donors quickly, which means, we we got to think about embracing new technology, new platform, like you know your 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 donor uh, experience officers uh, as a way to help us, you know, solve some of these issues of uh, pipeline building and the capacity increase in a shorter time frame than you know three to four years that it takes you to to really yeah. get going. And uh, so,
0: think, to- <laughs> well, it's just interesting what what you hint, hinted at, which is. The needs that we had before COVID are likely more acute post COVID. I would also argue that for the top of the pyramid, now obviously your community is uniquely connected to the hospitality and travel sector in in Las Vegas. But in general, when you look at the strength of public markets, of private markets, of real estate markets, there's been a lot of wealth created at the top. Mm -hmm. The needs are more acute at the bottom. And that's where I do think there's a unique opportunity for us right now to really connect that need and potential impact to wealth. Also taking into account the fact that we've just gone through a once in a lifetime technology wave of adoption. So donors are more accessible than ever before. In general, have more wealth than ever before. The need is more acute than ever before. That should be really prime, I think, material for incredible philanthropic outcomes um, but we got to have a motor.
1: Absolutely. I, I think so too. I mean, I see it here and I, I see it, you know, uh, as I talk to colleagues around the country, uh, there's a great, you know, there's some great uh, excitement about the future in terms of we haven't gone through this, uh, you know, pandemic uh, once in a lifetime event. And, the, you know, as you look ahead, the role of our education becomes even more critical. And so what an awesome time to be than be part of the new wave of, uh, you know, the new normal, so to speak, where we're thinking about how can we best help our institutions meet, meet their their mandates, you know, how do we best partner with uh, our community uh, partners and uh, other stakeholders to really build a university that we can all be proud of, build institutions that, that are gonna be those game changers. And I think, uh, you know, adapting, new technologies and ways of engaging people uh, is going to be absolutely critical for us to be able to you know, to uh, to, to meet these awesome goals in a, in a timely manner. I mean, we don't have five, 10 years to think about things. I mean, we, we kind of need to address uh, the challenges head on
0: uh, sooner. Yeah. Well, look, I, I'm biased. Obviously, I believe strongly in the potential for technology, but I would argue uh, that I'm much more on your side of the equation, which is it's all about the people. It's about the leadership. It's about the mission, the vision, and how can the tech align and support and streamline Exactly. It? But, but the tech is not going to solve the problem. It's the tech combined with the right strategy, the right goals, the right people, the right mission, values, leadership. And so, you know, it's, it's really fun to have conversations um, like this. Let me just change topics a little bit. And I know we need uh-huh. to conclude here pretty soon, but, you know, you've been at a lot of places. I'm sure you've done a lot of trips, um, you know, as a frontline professional yourself. Are there any visits you've been a part of that really stand out as being memorable, or gifts that you've closed that just—I uh, don't know—after uh, hundreds of experiences like that, you come back to as being some of your real highlights in your career?
1: Yes. Yeah, so when I was at University of Missouri, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, you know covering the, uh, the 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 School of Law amongst uh, a number of uh, different responsibilities I had. So. I recall one of my most memorable times. You know, was uh, a a trip I took with my former dean to Florida. Now, every year around February, the university has uh, alumni events in Naples, and then uh, you know, uh, one down down in uh, in in, in, T- in Tampa, and sometimes we'll throw Florida there just you know for the sake of it. So, my dean and I leave Columbia. We go stay uh, uh, by the St. Louis airport. Uh, we'll get there, you know, about maybe eight, nine. We have dinner and then we catch a flight at 4 a.m. to go down to Tampa. And so we land, we had a uh, lunch visit right away, but that person ended up changing. So we had to call uh, somebody else. And then we went and had lunch, went to an alumni event in Tampa Then got on the plane to fly to Miami, uh, got there, you know, about a hotel about 2 a.m. in the morning, then got up at five to go have coffee at a law firm in downtown Miami. Then drove to see one of our trustees in Key Largo and spend this fabulous afternoon by the lagoon watching the ships go by, you know, eating amazing seafood and really getting to know this gentleman. He was so excited that we, we had come down to, to see him and continue to thank him for a few million dollars that he has given to, to the institution. And uh, so we had an amazing time just connecting with him, you know, and all this time I'm the one driving, right? So that, that comes to the territory. And so we finished our lunch at about three o'clock, had to drive back to Fort Lauderdale, for another meeting, then drive across Alligator Alley to Naples to have dinner by 9 p.m. so that we can be ready for an alumni engagement event at the country club the next morning at 10. So that was three days and we did all that. And at the end of that alumni engagement event, the next day, we we, we drove uh, back to Tampa and we're back uh, in in Missouri uh, by midnight that day. So I tell people to say, "So you probably slept, you know, twelve hours." The entire time. I said, "Uh, yeah."
0: But sometimes and that you sounds like it. that sounds like a different world after the the year we've had. What you just described is so foreign. Do you oh, think? Yeah. Do you think? That kind of itinerary will come back. I, I do. I do. Okay, I mean, because
1: we were dealing with a multi-million dollar donor. Okay. When it comes to those uh, principal gift level donors, there is no substitute to in person. I'm sorry. I mean, some people may disagree with me, but, you know, you have to form those relationships where you look in each other in the eyes and you can... You can engage authentically, and you really have a good feeling about the two of you and how you're engaging. So, I think at the high level, you know, we're still going to have to to uh, to travel to go where our 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 supporters are. But I do think, though, overall, as we think about a regional strategy or what have you, there's going to be a lot more deployment of you know remote digital engagement than, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the one-on-one business. Uh, that's, that, yeah. to me, that's, somebody asked me the other day, they said, what do you think, how do you, how do you think, uh, you know, technology is gonna change development? You guys are never gonna travel, you know, you're gonna just be, uh, uh, you know, at home and do everything via Zoom. I said, no, uh, I, I disagree. And, and most people that I know do disagree as well. What I see is uh, there's gonna be a lot more utilization of technology and digital engagement at the annual level and at the entry level, major gifts. But when it comes to, uh, you know, the 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 higher sort of net worth uh, individuals, we're still going to be doing the
0: same good old yep. development work. Yeah. Look, so, I agree with you, Kim. I I, I think it's what I hope. Th- I hope things settle out something along the lines uh, as follows: we're going to be able to have more truly personalized, authentic touch points per donor per year. So for that individual in Key Largo, who's a multimillion dollar principal gift individual you're stewarding, do you still need to go and have seafood periodically with that person? Absolutely. But instead of just relying on that in-person experience in Key Largo, you could then schedule the Zoom call with the athletic director or the quick conversation with the dean and weave in more touch points that are a blend of physical and digital over the course of the year. And then I think there's a whole bunch of donors who are never gonna get that field visit, who are getting no personalized engagement today that we can bring into the fold sooner in their donor life cycle without hiring an army of gift officers. And so I hope it's that kind of hybrid blend where we can still do that really high ROI field travel, but go much deeper in the giving pyramid um, by sort of activating some of these new channels. I, you know, I, I I agree. I think you make a, a good point.
1: Uh, you know, it's interesting. You are asking about a memorable uh, a memorable gift. Uh, uh, you know, I always tell I always tell people we're the recipient of our, our colleagues' uh, work and generosity. Uh, everybody in development, you know, it's not a one person thing; it's a team thing. You know, when I was uh, at University of Arizona, I started working with a gentleman uh, who was CEO of a major corporation in Atlanta. And uh, worked with him for a number of years. You know, I would go see him. You know, we'll we'll have coffee. We'll have dinner. Got to know him. Got to know his wife and family. And uh, you know, I remember when I first met him. I had twenty minutes. That's it. So I had to, you know, have that passion conversation that our colleagues at Advanced Resources always talk about—the process of identifying the passion—and we got to the fact that he was really uh, passionate about education and having come from the Southwest and how he was able to get to where he got because of the university. And I remember we got to a point where it was towards the end of my tenure. And uh, he said, you know, so what can I do to be helpful? Oh, I love that. I I said, well, right now we're working on developing this uh, R&D center and we're looking for some lead gifts to help us with that. Will you be willing to consider that? He says, you know, Yes, but right now, you know, I just want to, you know, I have a few things I need to take care of, but I want to do something that's really going to move the needle. I said, okay. So I ended up accepting a position elsewhere, and I was leaving. So I emailed him. Hey, John, I just want to let you know this is happening. It's been great working with you. You'll be in great hand with uh, Jeff Goldberg, who was my former dean, and Barry, blah, blah, blah." And said, hey, it's been great. Look me up whenever you come to Atlanta. And uh, uh, I wish you all the best, you deserve it. So fast forward about four years later, I'm I'm talking to uh, my former dean and provost at the university. He says, hey, by the way, congratulations, said for what? Well, we we received a million dollars with more to come from uh, your work. Now I've I've been gone from that institution for four years. And so I started to work, I got, I, I got it going, but my colleagues that came after me took where, where I left off and across the finish line. And so while, and then we had, we had a board member who died um, a few years back that myself and, you know, Barry Benson, you, know, you name it, all these people have been working with for years, right? the university ends up getting a multi-million dollar gift. I can't remember, if it was, it was like $20 million, almost if I, as I recall, years after he had passed. And so you look at that and you say, how, you know, how? I say, well, because this is a team sport. We're each paying forward. The work that we're doing now is paving the way for the folks that come after us to be able to secure these transformative gifts to help an institution. And if you do development the right way, if you execute advancement the right way, you're gonna have a lot of those stories. And uh, if, you look, yeah. if you look at institutions that are really, really good, you know, that's what they do. You never lose touch. You're always, you always, you know, you're always being engaged authentically and people are not thinking about, well, I just got to close this deal now while I'm here so I can move on. They're thinking about the donor being donor-centric in working with the donor at a pace that is uh, appropriate for them.
0: There are very few, you know, businesses that have this dynamic of a pre-existing relationship, 5 plus decades of opportunity to foster relationships and revenue levels that can range from a $10 gift to a $100 million plus transformational gift. Uh, I don't think there's anything else like it. Um, and that's why, uh, conversations like this are so rewarding. I always feel like I'm learning and it's just, uh, it's just such a unique, wonderful place to be in. And, uh, I just want to thank you for being willing to share your story. Um, if, if our audience wants to stay in touch, Kim, what's the best way to do that? I know you're active on LinkedIn.
1: Yes. Uh, LinkedIn.com slash, uh, Kim Naoni is best way. Uh, can follow me on Twitter at Kim Naoni. You can also, uh, you know, uh, email me, Uh, it's simple, chem.naoni at UNLV, and uh, we'll we'll, we'll be glad to connect. I mean, I think we're in an interesting period in our profession, and, uh, you know, our institutions are going to rely more and more on us being committed to the mission of the institution and helping them uh, navigate this uh, new, uh, quote-unquote, normal. So I I applaud and appreciate every one of our colleagues uh, across the country that, are out there, you know, uh, pounding the rock and and trying to make their institutions better than they found them. Uh, you know, it's truly uh, a remarkable uh, uh, field. I've enjoyed uh, you know almost 20 years uh, of uh, a career in this field, and I'm looking forward to to many more years of serving uh, you know institutions of higher learning. So it's uh, it's, it's, it's
0: it's it's an amazing time. Well, to everybody listening, I would encourage you, reach out to Kim. He's unbelievably accessible. Find him on LinkedIn. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, He's definitely one of the people out there like like you who care about the future of the sector uh, and can do well and do good at the same time. So uh, thank you, Kim. We really appreciate you sharing your journey uh, with the RAISE community. Thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to
1: uh, more conversations.
0: Take care, Kim.